Listener note, this podcast was created as an adjunct for those studying for the PCS exam. By no means do we guarantee that one will pass the exam solely by listening to this podcast. We encourage all those studying for the exam to put the appropriate time and effort into their studying using resources recommended by the ABPTS and the APTA. It is not allowed to discuss test content and we will not accept any questions related to test content. While we will do our best to provide the most accurate information, if you feel as though we have stated something that is incorrect, please contact us via Instagram at Pushing Pediatrics. Hi, I'm Sheila. And I'm Sarah. And welcome to Pushing Pediatrics, an educational podcast for physical therapists created to help those studying for the Pediatric Certified Specialist exam and anyone else interested in learning more about pediatric physical therapy. This week, we will be going over muscular dystrophies and spinal muscular atrophy. As always, of course, we recommend reading this entire chapter as it has significant amounts of important information. We will not go over the pathophysiological information such as dystrophin and the muscle cell, but we do recommend that you go back and read this thoroughly to make sure you understand the information if you were to be tested on it. This chapter goes over all of the different types of muscular dystrophy, but focuses most heavily on Duchenne muscular dystrophy or DMD. Muscular dystrophy is caused by gene defects of the muscle. Primary impairments include insidious muscle weakness. Secondary impairments include development of contractures, postural malalignment, decreased respiratory capacity, cardiac dysfunction, easy fatigability, and occasionally obesity, oral motor dysfunction, and impaired GI motility. Although significant intellectual impairment is not usually seen in DMD, some cognitive impairments may be seen. A hallmark of DMD is progressive disability and increasing caregiver assistance is necessary as the child ages. So signs of DMD include Gower sign, weakness, coordination problems, clumsiness, and pseudohypertrophy of the calf muscles. What you might see clinically is delayed motor development, abnormal walking, difficulty running, difficulty climbing stairs, and getting up from the floor. You may also see frequent falling. It is common to see increased lumbar lordosis with walking, a waddling gait pattern, and toe walking to stabilize the knee. If a biopsy is done, you would see an increase in type 1 tissue, connective tissue, and fat. With DMD, stretching is a key intervention, specifically stretching of the heel cords, hamstrings, hip flexors, and hip abductors for the lower extremity and the elbows, forearms, wrists, hands, and fingers for the upper extremity. Active stretching is preferred, but active assistive with light traction is helpful too. You don't want to overstretch because the muscle is prone to micro tears. Often, night braces are recommended, as well as knee immobilizers. There are many outcome measures that help to predict the loss of ambulation and functional skills with DMD. Know these. Using the 10-meter walk test and calculating the rates between consecutive sessions in the 10-meter walk test every four to six months is extremely important 
in order to detect the probability of future ambulation limitations in boys with DMD. In the book, it states, 10-meter walk-run times that are greater than nine seconds and an inability to rise from the floor predict a loss of ambulation within two years. And a 10-meter time of more than 12 seconds predicts loss of ambulation within one year. There are many more listed in the CINRG Natural History Study, How Do We Predict Loss of Ambulation? I have added that citation in the episode notes. There are also a few good visuals that are provided by MedBridge in their lectures on DMD that are helpful to know the skills that a child loses first. Loss of ambulation has a huge impact on families and there are a lot of considerations. So being able to predict this in advance helps us get the equipment ordered, make any home modifications that are necessary, set up transportation and train the family on transfers and prepare the school. For DMD, the only drug that is shown to modify the history of the disease so far is steroid therapy. Two drugs mentioned frequently are prednisone and deflazacort. Long-term steroid use has been shown to improve outcomes, including prolonged walking by up to three years, improved muscle strength, and improved pulmonary function. Reported side effects include weight gain, especially with prednisone, growth suppression, cataracts, and osteoporosis. Exercise recommendations for DMD include age-appropriate recreational activities, as opposed to strength training, and concentric low load versus high eccentric load exercises. Clinical pearl here, no eccentric loading with DMD. The biggest thing to remember is to stay sub-maximal with your exercises. Remember, no change in strength in this population should be considered a positive thing, meaning if you're not losing strength, you're doing something right. Balance activity with rest and definitely do not overdo it. Rest periods should be greater than or equal to the exercise period. One should also incorporate balance and coordination skills, and the activity should be fun and promote self-esteem and social skills. There was a randomized control trial cited in our case studies book that supported the use of assistive bicycle exercise of the legs and arms to delay the progressive weakness and functional losses associated with DMD. The importance of prolonging ambulation is well documented. Once walking ceases, you have all the problems associated with that, like weakness, contractures, scoliosis, and respiratory issues. There are also a lot of assessment tools listed in Campbell and in the case studies book that we recommend you take a look at. The ones that are specific to DMD include the Egan Classification Scale, the North Star Ambulatory Assessment, the Brooks Scale, and the Vigno Scale. However, there are many others that can be used. The book has some really nice charts that help to make looking at the outcome measures more user-friendly. Initial limitations in activity tend to become more apparent by five years old. Like I discussed earlier, toe walking may be an initial sign or an increased lateral trunk sway. Running tends to present with a waddling pattern and a high step pattern with limited push-off. Gower's signs tend to be present. The PT interventions should focus on stretching and night splints. We need to manage joint flexibility and limit contractures. Again, exercise should be submaximal, and breathing exercises are important to incorporate early. 
The other main area of focus throughout the lifespan will be on equipment recommendations and implementation. There are distinct stages of DMD. There are five stages. The five stages are pre-symptomatic, early ambulatory, late ambulatory, early non-ambulatory, and late non-ambulatory. During the ambulatory stage, we usually see the Gower sign first, loss of standing from the floor due to decreasing anti-gravity extension, then loss of stair ambulation, then loss of standing up from a chair, and then finally, the loss of ambulation. During the adolescent period, walking is typically lost as a means of mobility and increasing difficulty in mobility is usually seen. Use of power mobility becomes necessary during adolescence. Cessation of independent walking tends to be around 10 to 12 years old. As stated before, there are many different tests to help determine when the child will stop walking. Orthoses in a stander, if they are used, should be initiated before the child is non-ambulatory. Gentle stretching is also continued during this period, and the child should still be encouraged to help with ADLs as much as possible. In adulthood, specific tests that document respiratory status include FVC, or forced vital capacity, and peak expiratory flow. Assisted ventilation is recommended when respiratory insufficiency is present with abnormal blood gas levels during the day or night. Some things to consider during the transition to adulthood include postural drainage, intermittent pressure breathing treatments, breathing exercises, parent and caregiver education for assistance with transfers and ADLs, environmental controls, power recline and tilt on the wheelchair for pressure relief, and a power controlled bed to allow for elevation of the head. So as we said, the chapter is very detailed on DMD. So we highly recommend going through and reading it all. There are also some other resources such as MedBridge and PCS Advantage that have additional readings, lectures, and resources on DMD that are extremely helpful. The case studies book also has a great DMD case study that reviews a lot of this information. Sheila talked about this a little bit earlier in the episode. Remember that case studies book also has a few questions at the end of each chapter. So a good way to start getting your mind into the question answering mode. Next, the book goes into other types of muscular dystrophies. Becker muscular dystrophy is a slower progressive variant of DMD and most will maintain walking past the age of 16. The general goals and management procedures are the same for those with DMD. Congenital muscular dystrophy has its onset in utero or during the first year of life. It is characterized by delayed motor development and early onset of weakness. Childhood onset fascio-scapulohumeral muscular dystrophy is rare and usually is seen within the first two years of life. Muscle weakness in the face and shoulder girdle is usually the only prominent feature. Myotonic dystrophy is usually adult onset, and any children born with the disease are almost exclusively born to mothers with myotonic dystrophy. Emery-Dreyfus muscular dystrophy is an X-linked recessive disorder that is slowly progressive and has cardiac abnormalities associated. Moving on from muscular dystrophy into spinal muscular atrophy, or SMA. SMA represents the second most common group of fatal recessive disorders after cystic fibrosis. There are four types of SMA, with type 4 being adult onset. 
The book does not go into type four, but rather focuses on the first three types. The primary pathological feature of SMA is loss of the anterior horn cells in the spinal cord. The primary impairment in all forms is muscle weakness. According to the Campbell 5th edition, there is no cure for SMA. However, now Spinraza is the first approved therapy for pediatric and adult patients with SMA. We are unsure whether or not this information is too new to be tested on, but it is good to at least be aware of it anyway. SMA type 1 presents between 0 and 4 months of age. It is characterized by progressive, severe weakness. Mortality is dependent on aggressive respiratory support. Life expectancy is typically 1 to 10 years. These children usually do not sit independently. Prone positioning should be limited or not used due to impaired respiratory function. Same with supported sitting. Treatment should begin with an early focus on feeding, range of motion, positioning, respiratory care, and developmental activities. This diagnosis requires lots of positioning activities using towel rolls. Sideline is a good position for midline head control and upper extremity play without working against gravity. SMA type 2 usually presents within the first year. There is a progressive loss of strength and pulmonary function. Contractures often develop within the first year of life. Sitting posture is a primary area of concern. Standing by age 12 to 18 months should be initiated before the onset of contractures. Orthotics for standing and supportive walking may be considered, but usually walking is an unrealistic goal. Use of a power wheelchair is indicated. Many children become independent with a power wheelchair between the ages of one to two. Scoliosis may also be experienced. Exercise appears to be safe and practical and an aggressive program of pulmonary care is required. SMA type three demonstrates weakness shortly after the onset of ambulation. Type 3A is seen prior to two years old and type 3B is seen after two years old. Proximal lower extremity weakness and fatigue are the most common impairments. Increased lordosis and compensated Trendelenburg gait are common. Initial disability becomes apparent within the first decade and includes difficulty rising from the floor, climbing stairs, and playing. A manual wheelchair or scooter may be indicated for long distance mobility in type 3A. However, walking may still be maintained throughout life. Range of motion exercises should also be prescribed. SMA type 3 may be a differential diagnosis to DMD because you can see that these are very similar presentations. The book includes many different outcome measures that can be used with SMA, as well as some evidence-based interventions. We highly recommend looking at these in your book. And with that, that wraps up DMD and SMA. Thank you all so much for listening to Pushing Pediatrics. You can follow us on Instagram at Pushing Pediatrics. We would love to hear from you. So send us questions, suggestions, things you want to hear more of, and things you'd maybe want to hear less of. We will talk to you guys next week. And remember, you totally got this.